0: Revelation Chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses one through 10 this morning. And I know we have um, several of you who have, have uh, been visiting this church for for some time, and, and others of you who are here for the first time. We're glad to have you with us, Um, and I promise you I prepared this before this morning, (laughs) but I I was wanting to consider the idea of searching for a church, so I think it relates to this passage. Many people search for a church and, and attend without ever asking the most important questions. They don't think about the the fundamental factors that should be considered. Maybe they look for entertainment or an interesting atmosphere, a a cool aesthetic, Um, even nice people. Certainly things are maybe more important than they should be. Certainly I agree that we should be nice and inviting and welcoming to guests. But the fundamental factor that should be considered by anyone in searching for a church home is whether the worship is biblical or not. The question doesn't only apply to the preaching of his word. Do we actually open God's word when we preach or are we just teaching sort of self-help methods? That's important. But I think it affects every element of worship. Worship. Should be guided and supported by Scripture, from start to finish, from beginning to end. And you might be unfamiliar with some of the aspects of our service. Some of these things might be new to you, but they are—they are not foreign to Scripture. They are prescribed by His Word. And so, worship is not a time to be inventive. It's not a time to be creative. Developing alternative ways of, of doing church is a recipe for heresy. And many false churches, even today, are not recognized by our Lord. Revelation 2 and 3 warned about that, even to the, first, the, the churches in Asia Minor in that first century. Right, the church had become so compromised with the secular culture that Jesus was about to remove the lampstand from their midst. And he warned if they did not repent. They didn't turn away from their from their compromise with culture and devote themselves to God and his word. then they would be lost. They would be they would be removed. From the covenant community. And so beneath their compromise, we we read of Satan's ongoing influence. Looking back at chapter two, verses nine and ten, John, we read, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now, remember, these are letters that that John is transcribing that are being that are being given through the the son, this image of the son of man. So Jesus here is speaking to the churches in Asia Minor. And he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. So we see the devil at work there in Smyrna. In Pergamum, we read this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So you see it again later on in chapter 2, verse 24, um, language to the church in Thyatira. Uh, you see it in chapter 3, verse 9 in the church to Philadelphia, the explicit references to Satan and the, to the demonic influence that had corrupted, that had begun to corrupt the church. To bring it to the brink of even losing its identity with Christ. Well, this is the dragon that we've been learning about in chapter 12 In chapter 12, verse nine. It says the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And so he had already successfully led many astray with false teaching and false practices. Satan, yes, he was defeated. As we read in chapter 12, he was defeated by the death of Christ on the cross as the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. But he was actively persecuting the woman some 70 years later. As we read there in, at the end of chapter 12, verse 17. Went off to he um, he begins to the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus So, if he's persecuting the church just 70 years after his defeat, it shouldn't be surprising that he's still persecuting the church some 2,000 years after the cross. This has been true of every generation since Christ's ascension. And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this instruction that we have about about demonic powers and influences in this world. or There are many sensationalized approaches to this text that lead us astray, that can be confusing and, and, and simply not focused upon what we, we learn about you and what we learn about ourselves. And Lord, how you are calling us to endure and persevere through trials that will come our way because Satan has not slowed his persecution. His influence has not been reduced. To the point that it's absent, Lord, we, we recognize that we still face the trials and temptations and challenges in this day and age, and so, Lord, help us. To persevere, give us eyes to see the truth, give us ears to hear it and soften our hearts to believe and respond to this truth in obedience. Lord, that we would bring you glory and that you would edify and equip us as we sit under your word. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. We'll read with me Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb or sorry in the book of life of the lamb who was slain if anyone has an ear let him hear if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we open here with the appearance of the beast. If you're following along your outline, that's the first first point is the appearance of the beast in verses one through three. The beast resembles the dragon uh, or sorry a a beast that is resembling the dragon rises up out of the sea we we have the description of the dragon in the previous chapter who had uh we we learned had seven heads ten horns and seven diadems in 12 chapter uh, chapter 12 verse 3 and now here in chapter 13 verse 1 the beast has seven heads ten horns the 10 diadems so slight difference there in the number of diadems or crowns that are on the beast's head compared to the dragon but everyone agrees that the beast represents some kind of combination of political power both state power and then individual kings Um, but the question is who where and when will these powers arise preterists i know there are some of you among us we believe much of Revelation was, in, uh, was fulfilled in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple. Predators argue that the beast is associated with various Roman authorities. That was the state power at the time of John's writing. And this comes from an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, where several beasts are rising up out of the sea successively, one after the other, and the first beast, Uh, looks like a lion, the second one looks like a bear, the third one looks like a leopard, and the fourth one has ten horns. Sounds quite familiar, doesn't it, to the the beast that's being described here. This beast looked like a leopard. It had feet like a bear and the mouth of a lion. And it had ten horns, just like the fourth beast in Daniel. Now, Daniel was told that each beast represented a kingdom that would successively arise, one after the other. And so the traditional view of Jews and Christians is that those kingdoms were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These are evil state powers which conquered each other leading up to the first coming of Christ. A sort of just common accepted interpretation of Daniel chapter 7. That if the beast in Revelation is Rome, if it was all fulfilled in that time, or the vast majority of the book of Revelation was fulfilled in AD 70, as preterists argue, then it is equivalent to the fourth beast in Daniel. And we already saw there's similarities here. They blaspheme in horns. Right. Uh, it speaks of, of the beast demanding blasphemous worship or, or de- demanding worship and, and blaspheming uh, God. And we know Roman emperors were certainly blasphemous to demand worship from their citizens uh, through the imperial cult. That was prevalent when John was writing this. But although there are similarities, it's much more accurate and and plain to see that the beast of Revelation is a combination of all of the beasts in Daniel 7. It's it's, it's the culmination of evil. That's being represented here. And so, yes, it is Rome, but it is not. It's it's much more than Rome alone. It cannot stop there. It, It goes beyond that. And we'll see that in a moment. But on the other hand, so you have preterists arguing that it that it was basically fulfilled by Rome. You have futurists who associate this beast with with future political powers. And here speculation abounds about who they might be and what ideological worldview they might promote. Some futurists are fond of associating the number of heads and horns with various political uh, structures, you know, in in various nations. And they say, well, see, there's there's seven seven states here and there's seven authorities and there's 10 in this region. So maybe maybe it's maybe it's coming from there that the beast is going to arise. And so they they evaluate and they speculate And so individuals like Hitler, Mussolini, Saddam Hussein, even Ronald Reagan have all been proposed as representing the beast various times in history. Others have confidently argued that the beast or the Antichrist will appear in our lifetime, that he's already alive and well somewhere in the world. How Lindsey in 1970 suggested that, and Dave Hunt in 1990 taught that the Antichrist is presently alive somewhere in the world. And while speculations of this kind are generally unhelpful, we should expect a future manifestation of the beast. I believe they get that part right. Uh, the beast is represented in the past; it's represented in the future. And at every point in between. The the many heads indicate various manifestations of evil state power throughout history. You can look at Babylon, Assyria, Rome, even more modern times, China, Germany, Soviet Union, Uganda. The ten horns do represent ten kings. We'll see that in chapter 17, verse 12. But we shouldn't make it our goal to assign each horn to a particular figure in history as if we could determine that with any precision. That's not the, the goal here. That's not the task. That's not why John was describing it in this way. No, he's talking about the, the evil state powers that encompass every age until Christ returns. So that they're, they seem universal. They seem everywhere. They're ubiquitous. That the original audience would have naturally feared Rome. Throughout church history we find state powers that stood opposed to Christianity. And so this there, there doesn't seem to be any good reason in my opinion to, to limit this beast to a particular age or period of time. If this beast is the antichrist then I think it fills that role much like John wrote about in his first epistle in 1 John chapter 2:18 where he speaks of many antichrists as having already come. And more to come. The first century church experienced blasphemous persecution, but that didn't exhaust the fulfillment of this vision. More persecution was to follow. Paul warns the Thessalonians that the man of lawlessness would be revealed before the return of Christ. He was he was. Cautioning first that, of course, Christ hasn't returned yet. He was he was telling them they have to see the man of lawlessness first. And yet, just a few verses later, he says that the lawlessness is already at work. And will continue until Jesus removes him. You can look at that in Second Thessalonians, chapter two, verses three through ten. So this beast received its power and its throne and its authority from the dragon, according to verse two. In Revelation thirteen. And this is the first time that we're reading of the beast's throne. Every other time in Revelation we've heard of thrones, and it's usually describing God's throne, or maybe the thrones that are surrounding God in his heavenly throne, on his heavenly throne, the, the thrones of the twenty four elders. And so we've sort of come to expect the throne to be given in this heavenly context, but the dragon and his beast present a counterfeit alternative. And that's what we see in this text in Revelation 13 is counterfeit alternatives to almost everything that God has and does. And so here, if God has a throne, well, Satan has a throne and he gives it to his beast. So the beast here imitates the lamb. And you can compare chapter five, the description of the lamb who is slain to the beast here being described in, uh, in chapter 13. They both have horns. Both receive worldwide worship. Both possess worldwide authority. And then both have disciples who receive marks on their forehead. The beast even depicts a counterfeit resurrection as we see here in verse 3 where the one of the heads is mortally wounded. And it's described, it's reiterated again by John in verse 12 and 14. The, speaking of the beast who's um, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed that 's a description of the second beast, which is calling attention to worship the first thing that who was mortally wounded so john John is describing this and he 's emphasizing this counterfeit resurrection that 's taken place that causes the people to worship him and so the the uh, the language here that says it seemed to be wounded um in verse three it's one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound i actually don't prefer that translation it's the same language that you find back in chapter five verse six it speaks of the lamb which seemed to have been slain and we know that the lamb was slain but rose again so it's the same idea here it's it's the idea is that, that this, this beast has been slain but has risen again, mocking or mimicking the lamb who was slain. And then in Revelation 17, 8, we actually read of the beast who was and is not and is to ascend from the bottomless pit. Similar language there to description of, of God, right? who, who was, is not, and then rises again. So rather than looking for a specific person or event that fits this description, I think it's it's more obviously looking at various cults or false worldviews that mimic the biblical explanation of redemptive history. Secular worldviews die and revive all the time. Just when you think Marxism, communism, and socialism have been thoroughly defeated, they creep back into cultures through crafty politicians and educators. The overwhelming number of parallels alone cause many to doubt the biblical account of redemptive history, and that is Satan's strategy. That is his tactic. He's deceived many by simply flooding evil at the church, as we read in chapter 12. At the dragon, who sends a flood on the wanderer from his mouth towards the church, and so on the one hand, this is quite concerning, right? That real evil empowers these fearful nations and these secular worldviews and these false religions that they promote, and these popular ideologies are even more wicked than we realize because they are supported by the devil. But we also just learned in the previous chapter that this dragon has been defeated by Michael and his angels in chapter 12, verse 8. So ultimately, the beast has a limited authority, and he will always be inferior to the head of the church. And he might mimic the lamb who was slain, but he can never defeat the lamb who was slain. He has been crushed by that lamb. And so this leads us to verses four through eight, the reverence of the beast. The people perceive the beast to possess this incomparable power and they seek to align themselves with him. Right? he's the one in power and authority. Let's let's all follow him. And so they worship the beast as well as the dragon who gave the beast his authority. And this, I don't believe, is limited only to those who would identify themselves as Satan worshipers. Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees that they were doing the work of their father, the devil. When Peter rebuked Jesus for warning the disciples that he would have to suffer and die, Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan. And so anytime someone attempts to hinder God's purposes, they are doing the devil's work. And those who mock Christian morals as outdated or as primitive Those who promote sexual promiscuity and homosexuality have indeed adopted the practice of counterfeit worship. And this pleases their master, the beast. Vern Poitras says, One must give ultimate allegiance either to Christ or to the beast. One cannot be neutral. Christ, there's no neutral party in this world. You're either giving your allegiance to Christ or the beast. And all except the saints... Poitras says, go after the beast. Since apart from Christ, people remain in the power of Satan and darkness, as testified throughout the New Testament. So the beast utters blasphemy and exercises its authority, we read here, for 42 months. In verse 5, he utters blasphemy and has that authority, and he, he he's blasphemous against God, his name, as well as... His dwelling. And then it clarifies that those who, in talking about blaspheming God's dwelling, it's it's talking about all who dwell with him in heaven. So even here we see the limits of of counterfeit authority. He's limited to do this for 42 months. And as we've described multiple times throughout these last few chapters, that language, I believe, is a reference to this entire church age. And so the beast is on a, a short leash in, in sense of, of looking towards eternity. But then we get to verse 7, and maybe you're shocked or surprised to read that. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. More language that you're very familiar with being associated with Christ. That representatives from every tribe, language, people, and nation will gather in heaven and worship him. Well, now you see that that's all being turned into worship for this beast who has conquered the saints. Well, that's also an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, where the horn, one of the horns prevailed over the saints and made war with it. It gives that language that it actually prevailed over the saints. Back in chapter eleven, verse seven, we saw how the two witnesses were conquered and killed in the street, dead for three and a half days. They too were conquered. They were they were dead there until they rose again and then ascended to heaven. So it's that death that precedes resurrection. It's a death or defeat that is only temporary. And all it truly does is it serves as another opportunity for God to show his superior strength and resurrection power, causing the dead to come to life. Now, how many atheists have predicted the death of God and Christianity, have suggested that it'll be, it'll be a mockery? How many have done that? Well, All of them have been proven wrong time and time again, and they continue to do so. Right? If this beast is nothing more than Rome, sorry to come back against you Preterist. but if this beast is nothing more than Rome in the first century then his authority was never fully achieved right? because Nero did not have authority over every tribe and people and language and nation and his persecution was limited to Rome it wasn't worldwide even though the Domitian's persecution extended to Asia Minor as we see in Revelation 2 and 3 it was also very limited and so we must See, the beast is transcending past the power and authority of Rome. It began there, but it did not culminate there. It didn't finalize there. If it did, then the limited scope of her authority would invalidate this testimony. Or at least seem to invalidate it. But rather, if we take the beast metaphorically as representing evil state power, then we can see its varied form throughout history. We see repeated manifestations of fulfillment. We expect it to continue. And we'll expect it to even culminate into this grand display of evil just prior to Christ's return. And so, yes, there are many antichrists and there will be a final antichrist who brings corruption into the church. The the only alternative to biblical worship is count- that's a worship that's promoted by Satan. That's always been the case. John returns to the idea of the beast worship in verse eight here. "All who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the Lamb of the world, or sorry, before the foundation of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain." So all who dwell on the earth here are those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. In other words, those names who are written in the Lamb's book of life will not be included among those who worship the beast. The book of life contains the names written before the foundation of the world of the saints who were ransomed by the blood of Christ. According to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, ransomed means purchased. And so if your name was written in the Lamb's book of life, then Jesus didn't merely make your redemption possible. His blood actually purchased your salvation. And it was determined before the foundation of the world. That's why we can endure whatever comes against us. And that's that's where we conclude in verses 9 and 10, the endurance of the saints. John closes with a warning. He closes this particular vision with a, a warning. It's a similar language than we've seen before. He who has an ear, let him hear. And he acknowledges in verse 10 that some of the saints will be taken captive and that others will be slain by the sword but he calls for the endurance and faith of the saints. And so again, we we see here persecution is inevitable. We know it will continue. But we also know that it is limited and we have confidence that we will provide regardless of its severity. Revelation repeatedly provides believers with encouragement to persevere. It's the theme of this book because Christ is victorious. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 Because Christ is victorious, we will endure, we will persevere. Revelation 13 shows that, that one of Satan's most deceptive techniques is to introduce counterfeit alternatives to true worship. Right? Progressive methods of interpreting Scripture lead to new systems of church government and of abandoning old and outdated beliefs. What brings praise and acceptance from a secular culture will almost inevitably lead to rebuke and rejection from the Lord. If you're reading the scripture in such a way that the culture praises you, you're probably getting something wrong. If they think you're being enlightened and progressive in your approach to scripture, then you're missing the point entirely. Right? If we are going to worship God in a manner that is consistent with His prescribed will, then we must come to Him through His Son with the enabling of the Holy Spirit. True worship is Trinitarian in nature, and that is why Satan mimics even that. He mimics the Trinitarian nature of God with his own unholy Trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, as we'll we'll continue to read about. True worship requires faith in Christ. Believing in Jesus is not simply professing his name, but placing your trust in him so that you turn away from your sin and pursue him in obedience. And that's what we read there, right? The description of chapter 12, verse 17. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's the description of the saints, the faithful ones. And that certainly includes obeying him in the way we approach him in worship. The regular principle of worship teaches that we should only worship God according to the methods that he has prescribed in his word. We're not free to choose our own adventure. We're not free to be inventive here. Inventive worship is the devil's tactic. And he provides countless counterfeits. But the faith of the saints that will endure the beast's blasphemy is the kind of faith that does not compromise God's clear teaching. And so let us stand firm on his word. Let us give him the glory and praise for providing it. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word we do want to be guided and supported by your word from the beginning to the end of this worship service as we do every lord's day we thank you that you've given us this day that's set apart from the rest we interact with this world and and we and we endure hardship and trials and yet you've given us a day to rest to set aside our worries and our concerns and to simply worship you to rest in the redemptive work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, to be reminded of the victory that he has provided and to learn from him, to be equipped by him, to enter back into the world tomorrow. Lord, and to face the trials once again and challenges knowing that you go before us and that you're with us and that you sustain us every step of the way. Lord, help us to depend upon you to continue to look to your word for that sustenance to be fed by you. Not only on Sundays, not only as we gather corporately, but throughout the week as we open your word privately, as we commune with our families, as we enjoy that family worship together, singing your word, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Lord, may your word be continually in our mind and in our hearts and in our prayers. Lord, as we reflect upon All that you're doing in and through us. Lord, help us to respond now, recognizing your authority Lord, your power. And with gratitude, give you thanksgiving for inviting us here this morning and for inviting us once again to the Lord's table as well. May you be glorified as we worship you in each element of this worship service. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand our hymn of, of response. Actually, it's a psalm of response, is Let God Arise.